Amen. Aren't you glad that the Lord came and rescued a sinner like you and me? Amen. That's good. Well, take your Bible, turn to the book of Mark. We're dealing with our series, Secrets of Successful Living, and we've been addressing this particular issue for a while, this little lesson, I guess you'd call it, our best for the Lord Jesus, our best for the Lord Jesus. And so Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 3, we'll read through verse 9, and then we'll see where we get tonight. We'll recap just a little bit of where we've been, and we'll jump into some new things here tonight. Chapter 14, beginning in verse 3 tonight, it's good to have the newlyweds back. Yeah. All right. Praise the Lord. That's good. We like to see them all get away for honeymoons and all that good stuff, but we're sure glad they come back. Amen? All right. Anyway, we're glad you guys are here. Let's go ahead and begin reading in verse 3. And being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. She broke the box and poured it on his head. There were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and had been given to the poor. They murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, you to speak to our hearts tonight. And Lord, may you use this simple, simple message, a simple lesson to encourage us and to inspire us to be better for you. We thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, we need you now to speak to our hearts. We gather because, Lord, we know that in the world in which we live, Lord, it can become a very discouraging place. You said that we're to gather all the more as we see the day approaching. How we need your comfort and your courage and your strength. How we need you to come alongside us even tonight and Remind us once again how real you are and your word is. Lord, bless us now, we pray. And may we learn, Father, to give our very best to you. May we choose to do so. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Again, in uh, our introduction, we learned a couple of things. One, we learned that much of what we spend our time and money on is soon forgotten. But that which is spent on the Lord will be remembered always. We said, don't allow the criticism of a few to discourage you from giving your best to God and others. We noted never lose sight or, excuse me, never lose sight of or forget who you're really spending your best on. And that's none other than Jesus Christ. So we continued last week by saying, the woman gave the precious ointment of the alabaster box. She poured it upon his head. But what can we now give to the Lord Jesus? We don't have an alabaster box maybe, right? We don't have uh, that ointment. We haven't been saving up for years to do something like that specifically, but what can we do then? I mean, we uh, might not have an alabaster box full of precious ointment, but uh, there are things we can do. And we said, well, one of the things we can do is we can give Jesus the best of our love. We said not only that, but we can give Jesus the best of our years. And we said, well, 
we can give Jesus the best of our talents. And so you may not have much to give, but you can give those three things. I mean, you don't have to have, we, a lot of times we think about giving, we think about money, but there's so much more that we can give other than money, isn't there? In our lesson today, we're going to know why we should give our very best to Jesus Christ. We know we ought to give our best, and we said some of the things that we can give, but why? You know, why should we do that? Well, let's take a few moments and consider that. First of all, because he's worthy of our best. That's a good reason, right? Because Jesus Christ is worthy of our best. We ask the question, well, who's Jesus then? Well, turn, if you would, to John chapter 1, verse 1. Again, probably a very familiar passage to you, but then again, maybe not. But in John chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to read a passage that begins to identify who Jesus Christ is. And boy, I'll tell you what, when we, get to, we start to understand who Jesus is, all of a sudden we realize why we ought to give our best to him. Notice it says in John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You jump down to verse 14 in John, and the Bible says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What we find then is simply this, that Jesus Christ is the Word of God. And we see him there. He's in the beginning was the Word. Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ isn't a created being? I mean, I know there are some faiths and certain religions running around in our country and around the world that are telling us that he was a created being. He's no different than Satan. He was no different than some other angelic being. I'm going to tell you something. Jesus Christ is God. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, I love the passage. The Bible says, For unto us a child is born, and a son is given. And of course, we know that that's prophetical about Christ who would come, about Messiah. And Jesus is Messiah. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And it says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And this is what I like. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Man, I like that. I mean, how in the world, if, if Jesus Christ being prophesied here in Isaiah 9, 6 is called the mighty God, that doesn't leave a whole lot of room for anything but being mighty God. I mean, that he is the everlasting Father. That means no beginning, and that means no end. Boy, that's wonderful. He is the eternal Son of God. Not only that, but he's the Lord of glory. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. An interesting passage, and one that might be able to be taken a couple different ways. If I mean, it could be, I guess, supposedly, but I mean, obviously, the Bible kind of directs us here. But notice it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, interestingly enough, he's the Lord of glory. It says, which none of the princes of this world knew. It's talking about the wisdom of God, okay? They didn't have, they didn't understand, nor did they have the wisdom of God. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Boy, I'll tell you what, they, they, they wouldn't have done what they did if they knew who he was. He's the Lord of glory. Not only that, he's the Savior of men. Savior of women. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, this is a faithful saying. And worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And the Apostle Paul says, of whom I am chief. You know what? I think it's important that when we get saved, we come to the conclusion that we're chief. 
You know, I think one of the problems today might be that we're, we're taking people through the Word of God and we're explaining and expressing to them the need of Christ in their life, but they don't really understand how desperate they are for Him. It's not like we're adding Christ to our life or lifestyle. It's not like we're including Him in our life. No, we have to receive and accept Him because we are, of all men, most miserable, of all women, most miserable. We are as Paul says here, chief of sinners. Boy, without Jesus Christ, I'm going to perish. Boy, if we could get that through our heads, if we could explain that to people, if we could remember that after we've been saved, how would it change our life, change our attitude toward Christ, change our service toward him if we remembered what we were without him? Chief of sinners. Notice not only that, but He's our Savior. We touched on that already, but turn to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. We're talking about why in the world should we give our best to the Lord Jesus? Because he's worthy of it. He's worthy of that. <clears throat> Again, sometimes we misunderstand, as we mentioned not long ago, but we even misunderstand missions. Why in the world should we go to a foreign land and share the gospel? Because those souls are in danger of hell, right? No. That's true in one sense, but the reality is we go because he deserves to have his message told. Because Christ is worthy. Because he seeks souls. It's not for them that we go, it's for him that we go. If we would get our allegiances straight, if we would understand why. Because I'll tell you one thing, if a missionary gets on the field and forgets why, or who, should I say, who they're there for, they could get quickly discouraged. They could find themselves being rejected by the ones they feel like they're giving their best to, and they may say, well, I'm leaving then. If you don't want me here, I'll go. Well, the truth is, it doesn't matter what they want. It matters what he wants. And may I say that it's easy to get discouraged knocking on doors if you forget why you're there. It gets discouraging very quickly teaching Sunday school if you forget why you're teaching. If you're really doing it for the kids, my friend, I'll tell you what, you'll get discouraged. If you're working that bus route just because of all the praise you're going to get from the little kids and their parents, you're going to quit real soon. You better remember and always understand it's not for them you do it. It's for him that we do it. Otherwise, we're in trouble. Notice he's our savior. He deserves our very best. He says, Paul the Apostle speaking there to the church at Gal uh, in, in Galatia, he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, I'll tell you what, he loved me and gave himself for me. Boy, he did that for you too. I mean, that's who Jesus is. I mean, he's our Savior. He's my Savior. Yeah, he saved you, but he saved me. Well, I'll tell you what. He's worthy of my best. He's worthy of your best. He's worthy of everybody's best. It was in 1873 in Dublin that D.L. Moody heard British evangelist Henry Varley utter those life-changing words. Varley said, The world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. Varley didn't even remember making the statement when Moody reminded him of it a year later. 
<clears throat> Moody said, as I crossed the wide Atlantic, the boards of the deck were engraved with them. And when I reached Chicago, the very paving stones seemed, marked, seemed marked with them. All he could hear was that statement that Varley made, the world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. What was the result? Well, Moody decided he was too involved in just too many different types of ministry to truly be effective. So therefore, he, he decided to concentrate his efforts on evangelism. And evangelize he did. We know from history that he shook two nations for God. Our best for the master. He is worthy, isn't he? Sir Winston Churchill once said this, We make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. Well, isn't that powerful? I mean, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. Give Jesus Christ your best. You haven't started living till you give Jesus your all. He deserves it. He's worthy of our best. Not only that, we should give our best to the Lord Jesus, not just because he's worthy of our best, but because he has given his best for us. You know, with the Lord Jesus Christ, the calf is always the fatted calf. The robe is always the best robe. The joy is always unspeakable. And the peace always passes understanding. See, there's no grudging in God's goodness. He doesn't measure his goodness by, by drops. You know how the druggist might fill a prescription, every drop counts. But God's goodness pours upon like a rain. Our souls are, I mean, he pours it upon our souls like a waterfall. And God is liberal in his giving and his goodness in our lives. And he's given his all for us. And he shed his precious blood in order that we might be redeemed. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19. <clears throat> there in the passage, we are reminded again of the price that Christ paid. It says, For as much as ye know, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And doesn't that do something for you? I don't know about you, but boy, when I read about that precious blood of Christ, I don't know, I don't know but it seems to me that many times we seem to downplay the blood of Christ. We, we forget how precious it is and how important and how essential it is. Well, that blood was shed, and that blood has to be applied to your life and mine. It has to be applied to our account. I'm thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ didn't just live and die. He shed his perfect, precious blood. And that blood today covers and, should I say, washes my sin away. And it does the same for you. 
Jesus, the perfect and precious Lamb of God, he willingly laid down his life for you and I. He did that for us. He gave his very best. The Bible says in John 10, verse 17, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. He goes on to say this, No man taketh it from me. Uh, Who killed Jesus? Oh, the Romans killed him. Who killed Jesus? The Jews killed him. Who killed Jesus? The sinner killed him. Well, he might have died for all of us to save us from our sin, but nobody put him on that cross but himself. I couldn't have forced him on that cross. The Romans couldn't have put him there. The Jews couldn't have put him there. Nobody could have. Jesus willingly laid down his life. And the Bible says, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Not only has Jesus redeemed us by laying down his life on our behalf, but the Bible tells us he also indwells us. Man, that indwelling thing's important, isn't it? Boy, it's important. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said at one point, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. You know, when you get saved, Christ moves in, takes up residency. But he goes on to say, at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. I mean, he's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. I mean, you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out the new... uh, uh, Wing, throwing up a new wing here or putting on an extra floor there or running up towers, making courtyards. See, you thought you were going to make it, make in, excuse me, you thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Now again, sometimes, isn't it funny how it is when we get saved, when you first trust Christ, I mean to tell you, you're excited and you're anxious about the change that God's bringing because there's been some annoying sins in your life that have often brought many consequences that, boy, you would like to see those consequences off your back and you'd like to see life running a lot smoother than it is now. But then he just keeps on working and he just keeps on changing things. And you start, if you're not careful, to say, what do you think you're doing, God? I'm... I'm quite content with the change that's already been made. I'm comfortable where I'm at. You can put a stop to this building project now. And sadly, Christians do that, don't they? When we were working on this building, we had to have a building permit. That building permit was approved by the city The city had to approve us doing the work in this building that we were doing. Now, you know, that's important for a number of reasons. And again, we may not always like to have to comply with building permits and things, but there are issues there that protect all of us as a result. I mean, they're there to protect us. We understand that. 
Are some of them a little bit over the top? Yeah. Are some of them uh, able to be adjusted based on the person that's viewing the situation? Yeah, sometimes they're in flux. But the fact is, is that they're really not bad. They're good things. A building permit needed for us to do this work here. The truth is, is that you and I are buildings. But here's the thing. We don't need the city to approve God working in our life. We need to give God a full permit of our own house. See, you need to sign the permit that says, go at it. You're free to do whatever you want in this house. And unfortunately, so many times, I've watched this in my own life and maybe even in your own lives, you've recognized this in yourself, that you've put a stop to the building. You finally pull pull the the, uh, permit and say, no way. I don't want no more work to take place. It's uncomfortable in here now. Things are changing and I don't like change. I don't want to go that far. And God's saying, just put the permit in place. Allow me to have access. Allow me to do my work in your life. In the Bible, somebody says, well, you know, he's going to do his work with or without your help. I get that, but let me tell you something. It's a real rough situation when God's going to have to, as Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, chasten us along the way. And may I say that, you know what, I'm glad that Jesus Christ is a gentleman. And I'm glad that he truly does want us to voluntarily submit ourselves to him. You can go ahead. He will spank you maybe to try to get your attention and bring you back to him. But if you are determined not to let God do work in your life, I'm telling you, he won't be able to do it. He's not going to twist your arm. He's not going to break your legs. He's not the mafia. I don't even know if they exist anymore. Anyway, (laughs) it wasn't until this woman realized that all that her Lord had given and all that he would give that she finally was constrained to give her best, her all, to him. She hath done what she could, Jesus said. No more, no less. Just what she could. Let me ask you, are you doing all that you can? You're doing all that you can in your prayer life? No more, no less than what you can. God doesn't expect you to do more than you can. Are you doing all that you can in your Bible reading and study? Are you doing all that you can in your marriage and in your relationships? Are you fulfilling the biblical commands and ordinances? Are you following through with his blueprint for your life? Doing it as the best you can? Just doing what you can. All that you can. Maybe there's an area you're not. We got, that's what we have to work on then. The Holy Spirit takes his finger and he puts it on us and says, this area is an area of weakness. And then we have to say, okay, Lord, you're right. You're right. And then it's up to us then whether we're going to yield to his work in our house. We're going to let him remodel the room, knock down any walls that need taken out, put some new carpet on the floor, 
What constrains us? What moves us? What brings our best to the top or to the forefront of things? Paul stated that it was the love of Christ that moved and motivated him. The Bible says, for the love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. Paul says, the love of Christ constraineth us. Man, I think about his love toward me. I think about how he loves me, and I can't help but want to allow him to have control of me. So we, again, we ask the question, why should we give our best to the Lord? Well, we said, well, because he's worthy of our best. And because he's given us his best to us. And finally, because only by giving him our best will we enjoy his best. The moment of dedication, that moment of dedication in that woman's life, that moment where she literally gave her all to the master, broke that alabaster box full of precious ointment. As we said, that ointment was pretty close to a year's wage. And as she poured it upon his head, many questioned her and others condemned her. But I got to believe it brought her tremendous satisfaction and a feeling of fulfillment. I mean, from that moment on, she would know what deep joy was. She'd know what abiding peace was. She'd be able to say, I know what it is to give my very best, uh, my all to the Lord. There's something about giving our all to something. I mean, whether it's to a, a sporting event or to, to some kind of a sport that we love and care about. You give your best, you know you've accomplished something, you've done something. You may not be the best, but when you give your best, it says something about you and it says something to you. And in this case, she gave her best to the Lord. and She understood that feeling of giving her best to Jesus Christ. And today it seems that God's people are seeking a maximum return on a minimum investment. Now again, some are not really interested in investing much time or, or even energy into Bible reading and study. But they still expect God to bless them with great wisdom. Can you imagine if you showed up at school when you were in school or possibly you are now and you just went up, went two days a week and you told your teachers, well, I don't feel I need to come the other three days a week. I'm just going to put two days a week in, but when I get to the end of my... But I want to graduate on time, mind you. I still expect to get my diploma in the year I'm supposed to graduate. Can I ask you, what would they say about that? They'd say, you're not getting no diploma. You're not going to get your diploma at that rate. There's no way in the world you'll finish your coursework. There's no way in the world we'll allow you to just slough off like that. You don't get to set the rules. You don't get to set the time. You have to show up. You have to be in class, and you have to do your work. A minimum effort's going to get a minimum, a minimum uh, um, return. You've got to invest completely. See, some are not too keen on investing much time and energy into the work of God, but they expect to hear well done both now and in eternity. Some are not so anxious to give up their treasures or talents or time in this life in order to invest in others or or in others' needs, but, boy, they expect to leave a legacy when they're gone. Minimum investment, minimum return. Maximum investment, maximum return. 
You know, that's true in business and it's true in the Christian life. It just doesn't, it's all the same. We are never going to enjoy his best as long as we're not willing to give our best to him. In John chapter 15, verse 11, go ahead and turn there, would you please? Boy, the Lord has high hopes and expectations for us. He wants more for us many times than we even want for ourselves. We'll settle sometimes for things when God's saying, I want more for you than that. Have you ever found yourself settling in your Christian life, saying this is good enough? I know enough. I go enough. I do enough. You ever found yourself there? John 15, 11 says, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, that your joy might be full. Well, he wants the joy to be full in our life. He wants, he wants it to remain there. I don't know. I mean, I don't know about you, but I talk to people all the time. And one of the areas that we're weak in is they, they want joy in their life. The Bible says about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. That's the first three. I don't know a person in this world that wouldn't say, I'd be very content if I just had love, joy, and peace in my life. I guarantee you, there's not one person that sits across the desk from me for counseling that isn't lacking one or all of those things. I'm telling you that in America today, there's very few people that could say, oh, I know what to be loved is and how to love. And I have joy in my life. And I I have peace. I wake up with peace and I go to bed with peace. I don't even know there's a whole lot of Christians that could honestly say that. Whether it's our finances or our relationships or our children or our job or whatever it might be, it seems that we allow everything to upset us. You know what the answer is? A relationship with Jesus Christ. Allowing the Holy Ghost to fill us with the Spirit because being filled with the Spirit, we have the fruit of the Spirit, which immediately begins with love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. And they'll all be present there when we're filled with the Spirit. I got one of them. Well, then you're not filled with the Spirit. It's the fruit. Singular, not plural. It's not fruits, it's fruit. John 16, says, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. <laughs> That's pretty good. Thank you. I'm glad, Lord, because there's a lot of tribulation in the world. A lot of hurt and a lot of heartache. See, there's so much that God wants for us. And how much we receive from Him is predicated upon how much we give to Him. If we give him little, I'm not just talking about money, folks. Don't misunderstand me. We're talking about our time, our talent, our treasures, yes, but every aspect of our life. We give him little, we shall only have the capacity to enjoy a little. It's interesting, isn't it, how the world doesn't want anything to do with Jesus Christ? Although he has the ability and the desire to give them everything they desperately need. But they don't want him to do that. It's not that he hasn't provided it if they choose to have it. If they call upon the Lord, they'll be saved. He loves them too like he loves me. But they have to choose to to want, to, to, to desire that thing, to want him first. 
You know, I think we're struggling today, and I have to hurry and close, but I think we struggle with the idea of what is it and why is it that we really do what we do here. You know, I mean, if, if, <clears throat> if you never, ever had anybody that smiled at you and said thank you or shook your hand, and I know that that's not realistic, and I know that example's a little bit exaggerated, obviously. It's a little partially exaggerated around here. But let me ask you, I mean, honestly, why is it that you do anything you do in the Christian life? If it's not just simply because I'd want to do it for you. I, I, want, I love you, Lord. I, I just want to be with you, Lord. If, you, if we can do for the Lord, but not want to be with the Lord, there's something wrong with us. I'll, I'll teach Sunday school, or I'll, I'll get on a bus, or I'll sing in the choir, or I'll play an instrument, or I'll sing a special, or I'll help in Sunday school, or, the, or whatever. I, I'll, do, I'll do this, and I'll do that. But then we don't have a strong desire, a longing to want to know Him, to be with Him. Boy, we got it all mixed up, don't we? That's why so many go like this. Because our motivation gets mixed up. We forget why we're doing what we do. We forget who it is we love and who it is we serve and that he is enough. I don't need you. I need him. First and foremost, I need him. You say, well, I got to have my husband or I'd fall to pieces. My friend, you better get a hold of God then. You better figure out who he is because you won't necessarily have your husband all these days. You're going to lose him sooner or later. You're going to lose your wife. You may lose a child. You may lose a lot of things, but he's always there. And the problem today is, is that too often we aren't fixated with him. We're we missing the point. We misunderstand what he wants. Boy, what's he saying in, in Matthew chapter 12? Wait, chapter 6, verse 33. Seek ye first, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I watch some of these older saints have lost loved ones, family members, friends. I'm talking about husbands and children and others, and I still see joy in their life. How is that possible? How is that possible? Because their relationship with Christ is big enough that he overshadows the hurt that they're able, he, he carries them through that thing. But boy, when we get so earthly-minded and temporal-minded, it's a mess. we got to learn to give our best to him, Jesus. Because it's not until we give him our best that we enjoy his best. I close with this, but a young boy, he was on an errand for his mother, and he, he just bought a dozen eggs. And he walks out of the store and he trips and he dropped the sack and it smashed all the eggs. They broke, started melting through the bag, so to speak, or leaking through the bag and it messed up the, 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 the sidewalk there. The boy, he tried not to cry. I mean, he was fighting back the tears. He wasn't very old and a few people gathered to see if he was okay and to tell him how sorry they were. In the midst of their words of pity, one man handed the boy a quarter then he turned to the group and he said, okay, 
I care 25 cents worth. How much do the rest of you care? <laughs> I thought this is great. And you know what the moral of the story is, I think? It's easy to talk about caring or giving. But another story altogether to show you mean it by offering self or what we possess. How much of yourself are you willing to give to the Lord Jesus Christ tonight? How much? What, 25%? 75%? Or are you willing to give your best, your all? Why should we give our best to the Lord? Well, he's worthy of it. He gave his best for you. And the only way that you and I will ever enjoy his best is by giving him our best. He's worthy of it. He's worthy. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for this time we've had together. We thank you for the simplicity of your word. And Lord, help us, Lord, just to always remember how important it is that we give our best to you. You do give us your best. Lord, how difficult. It's just so sad to think about the hurt and the heartache that people endure in this life. Boy, life can be wonderful, but Lord, it definitely comes with some real challenges. But one day, Lord, we're, we have the hope that it isn't all going to end here with this life. We have someone and something to look forward to. Not only are you with us and in us in this life, but we'll forever be with you in the next Thank you that you never leave us nor forsake us. May we learn to give our best to you and hold nothing back. May we prove our love, our sincerity, our gratitude by giving you not just 25% or 50 or 75, but everything. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed, every eye closed as the music plays.